everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Amos Grunendijk. Morning, everybody. Did you guys bring your Bibles? If you did, you can open up to Luke chapter 5. And if you didn't bring your Bible, there are Bibles in the back on those carts uh, as you came in. And the page numbers on the screen will be lined up with those Bibles in the back. Uh, you have been invited for this series to watch a couple episodes of the TV series The Chosen, which has its own app, and you don't have to watch commercials if you download that app. Uh, you can also watch it on Peacock, which is like the NBC Comcast streaming service, but then you have to watch commercials. Um, I've invited you to watch that because there's something significant about creating space in your life to just immerse yourself in the life and teachings of Jesus, which is why, in addition to watching the TV series, I've invited you to read through the book of Luke like a chapter a day, although now we're a weekend, you'll have to read two chapters a day for this next week. And a few of those early chapters were really long, weren't they? It's like 60 verses in some of those early chapters, but you can read, read, read them fast, and then once you get caught up, slow down. Um, I will say, if you code this as a spiritual discipline, uh, spiritual discipline being the sort of discipline that you would do to just spend some time in the presence of God, uh, you don't only do it when you feel like it. So like at nighttime, you probably feel like turning on Netflix and watching Breaking Bad or something, I don't, a football game. Uh, and that's just, you know, you're going with what you feel like doing. You might not feel like watching The Chosen. I, there's this weird thing. I, I'm never in the mood to watch The Chosen. I don't know why. Like I love Jesus. I watch the show and I like, I'll start weeping like a baby uh, when I see Jesus act or listen to him speak. There's just, I have this, emotional connection uh, to the person of Jesus. And so when I see somebody acting that out on the screen, it, there's just something that goes on in my heart. But I'm, I'm not necessarily in the mood. So when I watch The Chosen, it's very much a, a choice. And so that's the invitation. If you uh, started reading through Luke with us, you'll notice that chapter one, you think it's going to be about Jesus, but it's not. <laughs> Uh, you're like, who's Elizabeth and who's Zechariah and they're going to have a son named John? I thought this was a book about Jesus. And there's mentions of names like Herod the Great in chapter one. It it's setting this historical context or you're being brought into this place in time. So Herod the Great, for instance, if you live back then and if you were a Jewish reader, you would hear the name Herod the Great and there would be all this history that came flooding. And you would think maybe, as a Jewish person, you would think, Herod the Great, what a great guy. He did great things for us. He remodeled, rebuilt the temple. And so the history there is that the first temple that Solomon built was destroyed. Uh, and then it was rebuilt later on. If you read through some of the like later books in the Old Testament, you read that the temple was rebuilt. That is the second temple. But then what Herod does is... Well, the, the second temple wasn't built so great, so he comes in and he rebuilds it, and it's incredible. He uses stones that are on average between three and five tons. Okay, remember, 2,000 years ago, no diesel engines, no excavators, no cranes. On average, the stones are between two and five tons. Your car 
is probably about one ton. Your pickup may be two tons, okay? The biggest stone they found uh, on the Temple Mount where Herod would have rebuilt some of the foundation, he went all the way down to the ground in this remodel, was a stone that was about 30 feet long and weighed over 500 tons. So you're thinking Herod the Great, great guy. Wrong. At the same time he's remodeling the temple, he's building temples to Caesar, uh, three of them in fact, two of them in the middle of Judea and one of them in the northern part, not far from where Jesus would have grown up, not far from the road that Paul was walking to Damascus when he has a vision of Jesus, like way after, well, not way after, but after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, Paul has an experience of Jesus not far from, in fact, just in the shadow of one of these temples to Caesar that Herod the Great would have built. And so Luke 1 is bringing you into this world, and I think the Chosen TV show does this really, really well too. There's things happening that I've preached. I've preached that there are Roman guards on the street corners, and they're collecting taxes, but there's something about the ever-present fear and dominance and uh, just, just a Roman, can you imagine if we had occupying soldiers standing on the corner of 401 and 100 just to make sure you, you, y'all, we all kept the peace? And they weren't wearing red, white, and blue. They were maybe, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to insert any countries, okay? They're not from here. They're from some other part of the world. They've come, they've taken over, and now they are occupying and so there's this sense that, man, the nation is broken. Like our, we were meant to be a people, a nation, the Jews, like with sovereignty to worship God as we please. None of this temples to Caesar stuff, only temples to Yahweh. And so there's a broken like nation. It's a broken, like the church is broken. Uh, the church, I say church, that's a, not quite the right word. The synagogue is broken. The place you go to learn about God and the leaders of those spaces are teaching all sorts of things, and they're fighting about everything. They can't agree on anything, and the the religious weight that you find yourself carrying around is unbearable. The belief that, oh man, I screwed up again today, like it's just nagging because of the, the religious teaching of that time and place. And you get some of this sense in the opening chapters of Luke. But you also get the sense that there are people. Every time Jesus intersects or communicates with a person or heals a person, there's a backstory. This person's life did not start with their meeting of Jesus. Maybe a new life began when they met Jesus, but you see the history of, for instance, Elizabeth and Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 when you know, it says that they were, he was a priest and they were very godly people, careful to obey all the Lord's commandments, but they had no children. And so when an angel appears to them and say, you're going to have a child, like there's a lot of pain in the last 40 or 50 years because these guys are way past childbirth age. And an angel comes and says, you know what? You have lost hope, but I have good news for you. You will have a child and you will name him John. And then in Luke 
2, we find out that at the time of the Roman Emperor Augustus, so again, another reminder that this is golden age of Rome, uh, we have the birth story of Jesus. That's a story that you probably know because it's recounted uh, during Christmas time. And then chapter 3, John the Baptist prepares the way. And, and most of chapter 3, you can just skip because if you have your Bibles open, it's like verse 23 to uh, 38. It's a bunch of names. And the names might not mean anything to you, but to a, f a first century Jew, you see a list of names and you see this person of Jesus has this lineage that connects to your national history and your cultural identity. And so by the time we get to Luke chapter 5, we've already been immersed in a world that is not totally unlike ours, but it's pretty different. And Jesus, it says in verse 1, was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee when great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. Let me set a little bit more context before we go on, because Jesus is doing something that is actually very normal in that time and place around the Sea of Galilee. He is teaching to crowds. This is something that one of any number of rabbis might do. Visit the synagogue on Saturday to open up the Torah, go into the cities, the towns, go along the lake and teach to crowds of people. The rabbis were uh, men who would go around and share their interpretations of the Torah and the rest of the Old Testament. But it's not just the rabbis who would have had a deep rooting in their scriptures. By the time of Jesus, the Jewish people had a very robust system of education so that everybody that Jesus was speaking to who was raised Jewish, most of the people, that would have come to gather around Jesus, especially at this point in his ministry, would have been sent to Torah school. So listen to this from a, uh, this is a Jewish rabbinical book called, is this one of the Talmud? The Talmud, yeah. Where the writer says, under the age of six, we do not take any pupils from six upwards. We receive a child and stuff him with Torah like an ox. So at the age of six, about kindergarten age for us, right, you get sent to this Bet Sefer school, which literally means house of the book, Bet being house, Sefer being book. But don't think that there was this Jedi temple up on that hill uh, to the west where there is this like cool building and, and there is a bunch of, you know, little Padawans and their masters sitting around with lightsabers. Uh, probably no house, okay? Probably no building. Maybe they sat on the floor in the synagogue. Maybe the rabbi uh, or the local Torah teacher gathered his little, little people around and taught them Torah on the street corner or, or maybe even along the, the lake, right, if the weather was nice. But from age 6 to 10, every one of those children would work to memorize Torah because this was all about the book. And Torah would have been the first five books in the old, our Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Most Jewish students, boys and girls, would have had most of the Torah memorized. That's a lot. And you might be thinking, 
man, how, their brains must have been really different back then. How do they memorize so much text? And you think, well, I mean, if you're my age, you probably have most of Dumb and Dumber memorized. Uh, if you, or whatever, whatever movie or whatever music you're listening to. Like, if you have a, a teenager, like, they probably have uh, Khalid's songs, like, word for word verbatim in their head, right? But the, the energy of the Jewish people, the Jewish children would have been put toward memorizing Torah, by the time they reached the age of 10, there would have been a, a, a break-off point. So if you were bright, if you were doing well in Torah class, you would get promoted to, maybe this is sort of like high school or college, Bet Talmud, which means house of learning, where you would begin to embark to memorize the rest of the Old Testament. So under age 10, you've got the first five books memorized. From age 10 to about age 14, you begin to read the rest of the Old Testament and begin to get schooled in the um, great Jewish art of asking questions because the learning style of those people at that time was question, answer, question, answer. So you notice Jesus is in the New Testament the master at asking questions questions. And you find a few things interesting. Again, if we just flip back a few pages in the book of Luke, remember age 10 to 14, you are in Bet Talmud learning the Hebrew scriptures from Genesis all the way to Malachi. And so in Luke chapter 1, after an angel appears to Mary and says, while you're pledged to be married, you're going to have a son, but it's not going to be the son of Joseph. It's going to be God's son. Mary is most likely around age 13, somewhere between age 13 and 16, because that's when women are pledged to be married. And if you read Luke 1, verse 46, Mary breaks out into this song, and most of the song is drawn from the Hebrew prophets, the Psalms, all these scriptures that she would have been putting to memory in Bet Talmud. And so she begins, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, verse 36 of chapter 1. How my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he took notice of his lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And so she's taking the words of Scripture and winding them up, wrapping them up, embedding them in her own story. And she's, she's singing them out to rejoice in the fact that the the hope that not only she had, but the hope of an entire nation is going to come true because of a son that is born to her. And you flip ahead uh, to chapter 2, right? So the birth of Jesus begins chapter 2, but by the time you get to verse 41, it says, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was, how old is Jesus? 12. What is he doing right now? Bet Talmud. He is learning the Hebrew scriptures and the Jewish art of asking questions. When Jesus was 12 year old, they attend the festival as usual. After the celebration was over, Mary and Joseph start home to Nazareth, but Jesus stays behind in Jerusalem. But his parents didn't miss him. 
at first. <laughs> they realize Jesus is not with them. They run back to Jerusalem, and in verse 46, it says, later that day, I think this is on the third day after that he goes missing, but yeah, three days later, uh, they finally discover, whoa, I totally just lost my place. Well, anyway, verse 45, when they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and at his answers. Somewhere around age 15, you would come to that point in life where you had either done marvelously well in Bet Sefer and Bet Talmud, and you're thinking to yourself, I could be a rabbi too. And in this place, in this time, there would be no greater honor for you or for your family to be a rabbi, someone who taught Torah, who taught the Hebrew scriptures. Not exactly the same like ladder of success that we have today, but if you, if you were the brightest of the bright, you would go and find a rabbi and you would say, Dear Rabbi Shemuel or Rabbi Zacharias or Rabbi Hillel, Dear Rabbi, could I please be your disciple? And the, and the rabbi would begin to ask the student questions. You would say, well, can you tell me how many times the word Yahweh shows up in the book of Malachi? And what do you think about the interpretation of the Sabbath law as referenced in Leviticus chapter 27? And he would go on and on and question this young student. And the, the, the rabbi was not only looking for someone who knew their Torah, but who could take on the teaching of the rabbi so that that learner could pass on everything that the rabbi passed on to them. This, uh, this collective kind of school of teaching, this collection of interpretations and applications would have been called the rabbi's yoke. And so the rabbi wants to pass on his yoke to a student who can live into this set of interpretations and applications of the Hebrew scriptures and go and make disciples of their own. So that by about age 30, that little apprentice, apprentice would become their own rabbi and go and find their own disciple crowd. You know how old Jesus was when he started his teaching? Luke chapter 3, verse 23, Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. So if all goes well, you graduate from Bet Sefer to Bet Talmud, you go and find a rabbi who will take you on if you're good enough. And that time of teaching was called Bet Midrash, which basically means house of seeking. Again, not an actual house, a collection or a, a, just a time where you were seeking 
to be like your rabbi. Not only know what your rabbi knows, but be just like your rabbi. So that by the time of, you know, by the, by the time of that Jesus era, there were sages saying to students, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Because as your rabbi goes from town to town and place to place through this hot Judean arid land in many places, the rabbi would walk ahead of you, but you would be following your rabbi so closely that the dust he kicked up from your, his sandals would cover you from head to toe. You would have the opportunity to be just like your rabbi, and the best rabbis got the best students because if you got the best students, then your yoke would be in good hands and you would have a legacy that would be passed down from generation to generation. But what if you go and say to the rabbi, I want to be your disciple, and the rabbi begins his line of questioning, and the rabbi decides, you know your, or says, you know your Torah very well, but my dear son, you cannot be my disciple. You do not measure up to the kind of person I am looking for, so go home and ply your trade. You know what he would mean by that? Go home and ply your trade. This was, this was not a dishonor. This is not sin. This is, there's nothing wrong with it. But to go home and ply your trade would be to go home to your family business because if your father was a fisherman, that, that was your lot. Unless you end up being a rabbi, if your father was a fisherman, there's a very good chance his father was a fisherman and his father was a fisherman and you're going to be a fisherman. If your father was someone who worked in the oil press, you would go home right around this age 15 mark if you didn't measure up to the standards of any rabbi and you would go home and you would work in your father's oil press so that by the age of 20, you would be very skilled at pressing oil. You would be uh, not dependent on your father to help you catch fish, but by the age of 20, you'd be someone who could catch your own fish and provide for your own needs through your own trade or really your family's trade, your family business. And so let's get back to Luke 5. One day, as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. So, if the fishermen are washing their nets, it means they're done for the night. The nets were probably made of linen, a very common cloth material at the time. And uh, after your night of fishing, you would take your nets and you would, you would clean them and you would lay them out to dry because if you didn't let them dry, then they would deteriorate and mold. And so these, these fishermen are maybe halfway done cleaning up their nets for the day. They're going to go home and take a nap. Um, Stepping into one of the boats, this is verse 3, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. 
Oh, didn't catch a thing. This is your trade. This is your livelihood. You're a fisherman. You know how to fish. You fished all night and didn't catch a thing. Didn't get a 50% catch. Didn't get 20% of what you would expect on a like average night of fishing. You caught nothing. And again, if you watch the Chosen series, I never actually put myself in Peter's shoes and how frustrated, how frustrating it would be to be catching fish, not for fun, not to drink beer on a boat, to feed your family, to survive, to pay your taxes to the Romans. Your whole life depends on catching fish. You cast your net in and you caught nothing. You cast it in a second time and you caught nothing. You ca- Maybe this time I'll catch something. A third time, a fourth time, a fifth time, a sixth time. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I've been working all night and I have caught nothing. So I think it's pretty interesting that Jesus comes and meets Peter, not in a shining, glorious moment, but at the very edge of Peter's ability, perhaps, to just hold it together because he's frustrated and he's tired. He meets Peter in his weakness at maybe the lowest moment of his life. He caught no fish, zero fish, nothing. He has failed, not only (laughs) at becoming a rabbi, now I'm sure what's going through his head is, now I have failed at my family business. What is left for me in this world? Let's pick up right here uh, in the Chosen series where Peter steps onto the boat and says, put your boat out. We're going to catch some more fish. A little farther out. I don't have a quarrel with you, teacher. We've been doing this all night. Nothing. All right. That's your word.
my brother and the baptizer. <laughs> you are the Lamb of God, yes? I am. Depart from me. I am a sinful man. You don't know who I am and the things I've done. Don't be afraid, Simon. I'm sorry. We, we've waited for you for so long, we believe. But my faith, I'm sorry. Lift up your head, fisherman. What do you want from me? Anything you ask, I will do. Follow me. I'm not the only one with a little tears in my eyes. <laughs> I, I'm, I can see you. <laughs> uh, what's different? What is different about how the normal system of becoming a rabbi for the Jewish people, how is that different from what Jesus does in this moment? Well, let's find out what happens next. Verse 5, Master Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time their nets were so full they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners to the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before um, Jesus and said, Oh Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man for he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. Jesus replied to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything, including that very valuable catch of fish and their boats. They left everything and followed Jesus. Some of the other stories simplify it, and Jesus just says, come follow me, and they do. So what's different between what happens here with Jesus and the typical way of becoming a disciple or a rabbi? Well, in the typical custom, the student comes to the rabbi and says, can I be your disciple? And here, Jesus comes to a fisherman, which means what? He did not make the cut for Bet Mish, uh, Midrash. He could not find a rabbi that would take him as a student. Peter had learned, gone home and learned his trade, probably around the age of 20 here because he's doing it himself without his father's assistance, it would seem. And Jesus comes to Peter and says, you, Peter, I want you to follow me. I believe in you to be one of my disciples. We'll find out in another teaching of Jesus, my, my yoke, it's easy. My burden is light. So come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, 
for you will find rest in me. And what's Peter's response? So typically, the rabbi starts questioning the student. Jesus says to Peter, come and follow me. And what does Peter begin to do? He says, you don't understand, Jesus. I'm not good enough for what you're calling me to do. I am a sinful man. What's my credential list? I am a sinner. (laughs) I have screwed up. I have not trusted God with my whole heart. I have not loved him with all my strength. You don't understand, Jesus. I flunked out. I'm a flunky. And Jesus says, don't worry, Peter. Do not be afraid. You're going to catch people from now on. You're going to be my disciple. You're going to be covered in my dust. That's, I mean, that is good news for anybody who has ever screwed up. <laughs> because Jesus comes to Peter with an act of incredible grace and invitation. What's, uh, what's part of this whole package, though, is that Jesus chooses Peter, but Jesus also goes on to choose other disciples. So in other words, now the people that Peter is going to spend most of his time with, he doesn't choose. The community that Jesus calls Peter into is not the community that Peter probably would have chosen for himself. The friends that Peter will now have are not the friends that Peter would have chosen for himself. You only have to go down a few more verses to chapter 5, verse 27, where it says, later as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple. So if Jesus can say, follow me to a fisherman, he can also say, follow me to a tax collector. And a tax collector is a traitor to the Jewish people because a tax collector has buddied up with Rome for financial gain. Because the tax collector takes the tax for Rome, but takes, takes a little extra for himself just off the top. And so you can see how in the, in the aftermath of Jesus calling his disciples, that, that there are these moments where there's some friction because there are people with different values, even different beliefs now following the same person. For many of them, five of them are fishermen, at least one was a tax collector. The rest did other various things. But they didn't have a whole lot in common except for the person of Jesus, except for the fact that Jesus said, come and follow me. Okay, I know that uh, I'm not speaking the language of everyone right now when I'm doing like Bet Talmud and Bet Midrash, but I wanna, I'm gonna speak your language here for a second, guys. Do you, you know what's in this bottle? What do you think, any guesses? What? Honey? No. Good guess, though. It's, it's kind of viscous like honey. It's kind of yellowy orange like honey. Don't drink it. That's a clue. Oil. This is motor oil, okay? I, uh, I actually take a lot of pride in the fact that I, I changed my own oil. I don't know if it's cost effective, uh, but it's fun for me, I guess. And unfortunately, I had brought all my waste oil to the, to the, you know, the dump depot, but After a while, you know what happens to this beautiful orange, kind of clear, almost see-through oil? Have you ever seen motor oil uh, that's been in a car for a little while? It turns black as a starless night. Because what does motor oil do? 
motor oil makes it so that where there would be a friction point, there's not a, a catastrophic event. <laughs> but as these little friction points happen, thousands and thousands and thousands of times per minute in your car, there will be these little bits of like scrap metal uh, that if not for the oil would, would eventually like kill your engine. But what the oil does is it takes, it lubricates the friction points and it takes the, the damage done from the friction points and puts them up into suspension so that the engine can continue to run. So too, I think, with the people who decide to follow Jesus because there's all kinds of potential for friction and engine failure, let's say. So let's jump to Colossians chapter 3. I think this little passage here speaking about what it means to follow Jesus in diverse community is like the engine oil for people who are different, who have all this potential to uh, come into friction. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Listen to this. Since... God chose you to be the holy people he loves. You must clothe yourselves. Slightly different metaphor, but also kind of the same. Clothe yourselves like the dust of a rabbi, coated from head to foot. Clothe yourselves now with the character of your rabbi, Jesus, with tenderness, Mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This is the motor oil that keeps the engine from blowing up. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect unity or harmony. This translation says, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to immerse yourself so much in the life and teachings of Jesus that it is as if you are wearing his character. And so that when you relate to God, you relate to God, not perfectly like Jesus, but like Jesus in the sense that there's a dynamic relationship and God's spirit becomes the engine for all that you do to be like Jesus in the way that you relate to other people, to repay insult with blessing, to treat your enemies with love, to always be a person of kindness, to always be a person who is quick to forgive. This is what it means to follow in the footsteps of our rabbi. One final thing. When Jesus is first asked to put his boat, or Jesus, when Jesus first asked Peter to put his boat out into water to put in some fish, Peter says, yes, master. Essentially, like, you're the boss. Everybody, anybody ever tell you that? You're the boss. Like, okay, I'll do it. I mean, like, you're in charge. I see that. You have authority. I'll do it. What does a rabbi know about fishing? Not sure, but okay. <laughs> I'll put my boat out. You're the boss. After the catch of fish, Peter comes to Jesus and says what? How does he address him? Not master, not you're the boss, Lord. 
Lord can be synonymous with master, but it's not the same Greek word here. And if you were to read Luke chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, the word Lord would come up, circle them, 30 times. And each and every time, this word is talking about God, the one who rescued his people from Egypt, led them into the promised land, sustained them through exile. Every single time in chapters 1 through 4, those 30 times it's talking about God when it's talking about Lord. And so Peter goes from, you're the boss, I'll let you tell me what to do this one time to, you are my Lord. I'm going to let you tell me what to do all the time. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to give you my entire life to you. And so that's the invitation for us. And so I would, uh, I would ask you to stand. And one of the things that happens when we sing <clears throat> is that essentially we're saying to Jesus and to God, I love you. I want to be like you. You are my, you are my teacher. And I'm not going to do the, the things that I would do if it was just me, if I was the boss. I'm going to live my life for you, Jesus. And I'm not going to make the friends that I would want to make if I was the only one in charge of my life. Jesus, you are Lord. And so let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. We invite you to, to fill us with your character, with your very life. We love you. And for that reason, we sing to you now. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.